The Old Testament reading for today is Malachi 3, verses 1 through 5. Malachi 3, verses 1 through 5. The New Testament reading is Luke 7, 24 through 30. That is our sermon text for today. We will begin with Malachi 3, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let us now go to Luke chapter 7 and read verses 24 through 30, our sermon text. Here we find the words of Jesus. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning him. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. The passage that is before us today is rather straightforward. Here we learn that Jesus testified concerning the goodness and greatness of John the Baptist. So, just as John the Baptist was faithful to testify concerning Jesus as the Messiah, so too Jesus was faithful to testify concerning John, that he was indeed the great prophet who would prepare the way for the Messiah. So, as I said, the text is rather straightforward and simple, and yet I think there is a lot to glean from it if we would only slow down enough to reflect upon what it says. And I do encourage you, brothers and sisters, to, to slow down, to settle, and to consider God's most holy word. Friends, I think you and I must remember that we are living a long time after the Messiah has come to accomplish salvation and to inaugurate the new covenant under which we now live. You and I have the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New. We even have these Scriptures 
in writing and in our native tongue. And we also benefit from nearly 2,000 years of church history wherein men and women have have reflected upon the Scriptures, the Christ who is revealed within, and have written great works of theology. I think it is important for us to remember the uniqueness of the time in which we live. We live under the New Covenant. We live a long time after Jesus the Messiah has come to accomplish our redemption. It's especially important for us to remember these things when we consider passages like the one before us today. Luke 7, 24-30 tells us about things that happened as Jesus Christ was just beginning His earthly ministry. Men and women were just beginning to recognize Him as the Messiah, therefore. What exactly He would be, and what exactly He would do to bring salvation to His people was still a mystery to them. We must remember that. What exactly Jesus would be, and what exactly He would do to bring salvation to His people was still a mystery to those who engaged with Jesus at this point in His earthly ministry. The word mystery is a very important word. It is actually used often in the Bible, especially in the writings of Paul, particularly in Ephesians and Colossians. Paul uses the word mystery to describe the information that people had about the Messiah before He lived, died, and rose again. You may see, for example, Ephesians 3, 8-11. through Uh, the use of the word mystery in this sense. Did people know about the Messiah before He was born? We must say, yes, they did. Did they know that He would accomplish salvation? Yes, they did. Did some place their faith in Him for the forgiveness of their sins and for life everlasting? Yes, they did. Abraham, for example, Believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is Romans 4, 3. What exactly did he believe? Well, he believed the Word of God. He believed the promises of God ultimately concerning the coming Messiah. And there were many others who had the faith of Abraham and were therefore saved by faith. But what did those who lived prior to the coming of Christ believe in? They believed, as I have just said, in God's Word. They trusted in the promises of God concerning the Messiah who was to come. They believed in God's promise that redemption would someday be accomplished, that sins would someday be atoned for, and that Satan's sin and death would someday be overthrown and defeated. I'm encouraging you, brothers and sisters, to put yourselves there in that time before Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, and to remember that all who believed upon God and upon the promises of God then, they knew about the Messiah, but, but things were mysterious to them, if I may use that word. Things were a mystery to them. Who the Messiah would be, when He would come, what He would be like, and how exactly He would accomplish our redemption was mysterious to them. Some who lived prior to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ received light from God concerning the Messiah, but the light was very dim when compared to the light that we now enjoy, now that Christ has come. In fact, we do know what it is like to believe truths cloaked in mystery. I'm thinking of here, I'm thinking here of what the Scriptures say regarding the return of Christ. Do we know that Christ will return? Yes. Do we know that He will judge when He returns? Yes. Do we know that He will bring His people into the new creation when He returns? Yes. But many of the details remain a mystery. When will Christ return? 
What exactly will He and we be like? What will the glory of the new creation be? It's hard to say exactly, isn't it? That seems like a mystery to us. We know certain things to be true, but there is much that we do not know. But we will know when it happens. Until then, we trust in Christ in the promises of God's, and in the promises of God's Word. And I'm saying that something very similar was experienced by the people of God concerning their knowledge of the Messiah prior to His birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. They knew He would come. They understood some things about who He would be and what He would do. They knew enough to place their faith in Him. But the picture they had of Him was not nearly as clear as the one that we have now that He has come to fulfill all of God's purposes for Him. So why am I reminding you of these things in the introduction to the sermon on Luke 7, 24-30? Well, it is so that we might recognize that the events and sayings recorded here took place during a time of great transition. There have been a few great transitions that have taken place in human history. Man's fall into sin was a great transitional moment. Man fell from a state of perfection into a state of sin and misery. The global flood in the days of Noah was a great transitional moment. By it, the world that once was, was separated from the world that now is. That is the way that uh, Peter speaks of, of the flood in 2 Peter 3, 6-7. through He says that the world that once was passed away and the world that now is came into existence. It was a kind of, it was a kind of new creation moment, a, a judgment and a new creation, uh, the flood was. Israel's redemption from Egyptian bondage was a transitional moment. For then, the kingdom of God was pictured or prefigured on earth for the very first time. The greatest of all transitions is still in our future. It will happen when Christ returns to usher in a new creation and a new heaven and earth. Then, the first heaven and earth, the one in which we now live, will pass away and the new will come. That is what Revelation 21 describes But of course, the new creation that will be brought into existence at Christ's second coming was earned and inaugurated or begun at His first coming. And that is what we are now considering in Luke's Gospel, Christ's first coming. The period of time that Luke records for us was a time of great transition. For in those days, the Christ who was promised by God from long ago was coming into the world to accomplish salvation for God's elect to inaugurate or begin the kingdom of God on earth, and to begin a new creation. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation, remember. And so he did begin the new creation when he first came. In those days, Christ was coming into the world. And I say, was coming, in order to stress that his first coming was progressive. The eternal Son of God became incarnate, being conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was born. He grew in wisdom and stature. At at about the age of 30, John the Baptist introduced him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father, and after about three years, he was crucified unjustly. He died, was buried, and rose again on the third day, and after showing himself to be alive for 40 days, he ascended to the right hand of the Father from whence he will return. His first coming was progressive. It was a process that lasted about 33 years. The progressive nature of Christ's first coming, I think, can be compared 
to the redemption that was worked for Israel from Egyptian bondage through Moses. That act of redemption was also progressive. What do I mean by that? Well, it really began with the birth of Moses, and it culminated in the outpouring of ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. That act of redemption, brothers and sisters, was a picture or type of the greater act of redemption that Christ has worked. And the two acts share this in common. They were both Progressive. They took time to unfold. Christ's first coming and the accomplishment of our redemption at His first coming was a progressive thing. But brothers and sisters, Christ's second coming will not be progressive. It will not be progressive. It will happen in a moment and without warning. Christ's second coming can be compared to the judgment of the flood that came upon the earth in the days of Noah. In fact, Jesus is the one who makes this comparison. In Matthew 24, 38, He says, For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It will not be a progressive thing in any way, shape, or form. Some of you who are aware of the different views on the end times, uh, you you probably can recognize that I am um, putting down some of them right now. It will not be progressive in any way, shape, or form, but Christ will come in a moment, and that will be the consummation of all things. That will be the judgment day. That will be the day in which God brings His people safely into the new heavens and new earth. There will be no process, but only a quick and sudden return of Christ, He will come like a thief in the night, the Scriptures say. Now, with all of that as an introduction, I want to dive into our text for today, being mindful of the fact that this period of time that we are considering was a time of great transition. In these days, the Christ was coming into the world to accomplish redemption for all whom the Father had given Him in eternity. John the Baptist had faithfully testified concerning Jesus. He told everyone he could that Jesus was the Messiah and urged them to turn from their sins and to follow Him. Now John is in prison. And here in our text for today, Jesus testifies concerning John. He says, this man was a good man. This man was a great man. This man was a prophet. He was even more than a prophet. First, in verses 24 through 28, Jesus declares that John the Baptist is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. In verse 24 we read, When John's messengers had gone, remember they had come to Jesus to inquire of Him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Well, Jesus answered them, not only in word, but first in deed. And they went away. So when these messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He did this, no doubt, because the people likely had questions about John. Not long before this, great masses of people were going out into the wilderness to listen to John's teaching and to be baptized by him. The people regarded him as a prophet. This was the first time the Lord had spoken through a prophet like this since the days of Malachi. We read a text from Malachi just a moment ago. And some were wondering if He was the Messiah, and He insisted that He was not, but that Jesus was. And now John, we must remember, was in prison. So, this is quite the turn of events. I'm sure that many people wondered what they were to make of John. 
We had such high hopes and expectations for him. We wondered even if he was the Messiah. He was at the height of his popularity not long ago, but now he has, from a human perspective, fallen so low. He is in prison. What are we to make of John? The people likely wondered how they were to interpret this change of events. And some slandered him, I'm sure. And so Jesus spoke up to defend him. By the way, Christ still does this for all of his people as our great mediator in heaven. Jesus said, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women... None is greater than John. When Jesus asked, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. He was asserting that John was not a person who was easily shaken. A reed is easily shaken. A soft breeze will make it quiver. And the obvious answer to this question that Jesus posed is, Of course not. Of course we did not go out into the wilderness to see a man of weak resolve. Of course we did not go out into the wilderness to see a man with no substance or no foundation. The multitudes did not flock to John because he was a man easily shaken. Instead, they flocked to him because he was a man of substance, resolve, and strong faith. You see how Jesus asserts this through the question he asked? The question receives an obvious answer. Of course not. We did not go out to see this. And here Jesus is asserting that John is a man of, of great resolve, a, a man of substance, a man of strong faith, not easily moved. When Jesus said, What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing, and behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. He was asserting that John was not the kind of person who would compromise when faced with hardships. John had already decided to separate himself from the world and to forsake the pleasures of this world. We must remember that he decided to live in the wilderness. He wore rough clothing. He ate locust and wild honey. That's how he, that's how he survived in the wilderness. He, he subsisted off the, the, the land. He devoted himself to fasting and prayer. So Jesus is here reminding his audience, that John had already forsaken the world for the sake of Christ. He would not compromise when threatened with discomfort or death. He would not be tempted by the pleasantries of this life, for he had already died to them. So the answer to the first two questions posed by Jesus is obviously no. But the answer to the third question is yes. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. And so Jesus declared John the Baptist to be a prophet, a prophet like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. When He declared him to be more than a prophet, He meant that He was a prophet like no other. For He was a prophet about whom other prophets had prophesied. Did you track with me through that sentence there? (laughs) He was a prophet about whom other prophets had prophesied. Jesus then quoted from the prophet Malachi in three, Malachi 
um, he says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is saying, this is speaking of John the Baptist. This is the messenger of whom Malachi the prophet spoke. This is the one who was sent to prepare the way for the Lord, for the Messiah, and I am that Messiah. And so John the Baptist is declared to be a prophet. Indeed, he is declared to be more than a prophet. He is the prophet who had the unique privilege of preparing the way for the Messiah in such a direct and immediate way. Jesus then made this remarkable comment, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So he is to be regarded as the greatest of all the prophets and people who had ever lived up until then. I think a question we should ask is, what made John the Baptist so great to receive this commendation from Jesus? And the answer is that it was Christ who made him great. By the grace of God, John was born to be the one who prepared the way for Christ. By the grace of God, John was given the gift of faith to know that Jesus was the Christ. By the grace of God, John forsook all the pleasures of this world and even life itself to be the forerunner for the Messiah. And by the grace of God, John was uniquely blessed to say these words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No other prophet was blessed to say those words. The prophets of old did speak of Christ, but not in such an immediate way. None of them had the pleasure and the privilege of saying, Look, behold, there He is. They spoke of the coming Messiah, but from a great distance, chronologically speaking. But John the Baptist had the great pleasure of looking at Jesus with his own eyes, And saying, there is the Messiah. Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was blessed to see Him with his own eyes, to touch Him with his own hands, to baptize Him with water, to witness with his own eyes the anointing with the Holy Spirit, to hear with his own ears the declaration of the Father, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So just think of the privileged place that John the Baptist was given in the outworking of the history of redemption. He was blessed to point with his own hand while uttering the words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By the grace of God, John was a great man who was strong in faith, in hope, and in love. But it was his proximity to Jesus that set him apart as truly great. It was his proximity to Jesus that set him apart as truly great. He was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. He was the prophet who was blessed to minister at this time of great transition, to announce that the Messiah was coming into the world to finally accomplish our redemption and fulfillment of all the promises of God previously made. That this is what made John the greatest of all the prophets, his proximity to Christ, is is made clear, I think, by what Jesus says next. I want you to look with me at Luke 7, verse 28, near to the end of that verse. There Jesus adds this statement, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Yet 
The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, Jesus says. This is a mysterious saying, wouldn't you agree? And yes, I am intentionally playing off the word mystery, as it was used earlier in this sermon. For I do believe that the key to understanding the meaning of this saying of Jesus is to interpret it in light of the doctrine of the mystery of Christ once concealed but now revealed. It's a mysterious thing that Jesus says. It's a strange thing. It, it can be a perplexing thing. In fact, uh, the commentary tradition uh, will give you uh, many different interpretations of this saying of Jesus. Some think that Jesus is speaking of the angels when He speaks of the least of those in the kingdom. The least of the angels is greater than John, they take to be the meaning. And though true, I doubt this is the meaning. Some think that Jesus is speaking of those who have died and have gone to glory. So, when John is talking about the least in the kingdom, he is speaking of those who have gone to glory, uh, gone to paradise, saying that they are greater than John who is on earth. And though this is in a way also true, I doubt it is the meaning. Instead, to understand what Jesus meant when He said, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John... We must remember that both John the Baptist and Jesus preached about the kingdom of God or of heaven, saying that it was at hand. This was a very central piece of the preaching ministry of Jesus and of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came preaching like this, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, we could go back to Luke 1.33 to see that Jesus was born to establish an eternal kingdom. This was the purpose for which He was born, to establish an eternal kingdom. According to Matthew 3.1-2, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke 4.43, we are told that Jesus went about preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And in Luke 6.20, We hear the words of Christ as He came down from the mountain with His disciples to preach in that level place. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So this was a central piece of the preaching of John the Baptist and of Jesus. These two men were announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. It was present. That means that it is about to be present in a way that it was not present before. And so we must keep this in mind as we seek to understand what Jesus meant when he said, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So the kingdom of God or of heaven, of which John the Baptist in Christ spoke, is not confined to to heaven, but is present on earth. It was not present on earth before Christ came, but it was at hand in the days of John and Jesus' earthly ministry. In other words, it was very near. So clearly the arrival of this kingdom was associated with the arrival of the Messiah, for Jesus is the King of this eternal kingdom. Are you following along with me here? I hope that you are. Jesus is not here comparing John the Baptist on earth with anything in heaven, the angels or the saints who have gone to paradise or to glory. Instead, Jesus is comparing John the Baptist on earth with those who will live on earth, in Christ's kingdom, when it comes in the fullness of its power. The comparison is not vertical, is what I am saying, uh, between earth and heaven, but rather it is 
historical. It is horizontal and historical. Redemptive historical is the comparison that is being made here. When, when Jesus said that none was greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, I have already said he was not comparing John with the angels in heaven or with the saints who have died and were in paradise, but rather Jesus was comparing the greatness of John who lived and would die before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ with the far surpassing greatness of those with faith in Christ who would live after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That is the comparison that is being made, and I think it is a fascinating comparison. It is one that we need to consider, brothers and sisters. We need to fully appreciate how blessed we are to live in the kingdom of God that Christ inaugurated at His first coming. So let us do that. When Jesus said, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, He meant that the lowliest disciple of His, who lives after His death and resurrection, will experience something greater than what John the Baptist ever experienced on earth, namely life in His inaugurated kingdom. Though it is true that none who lived up till then was greater than John, it is also true that John would never experience life in the inaugurated kingdom of God on earth. He preached about the arrival of the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he said. But he would die before it was present with power. And I think in this way John the Baptist was like Moses. Moses, remember, prepared the people to enter the promised land where the kingdom of God would be prefigured on earth, but he himself never entered into it. He died outside of that that prefigured kingdom. And so John the Baptist experienced something similar. He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He was the one who was blessed to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was blessed to say, Repent, for the kingdom of God or heaven is at hand, but he never did enter into it not on earth. When did the kingdom of God come to be present on earth with power? When did the kingdom of God come to be present on earth with power? We must say that it was after Christ lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father as the second and greater Adam. It was after He suffered and died in the place of those given to Him by the Father in eternity to bear the wrath of God in their place and to atone for their sins. It was after Christ died and was raised, thus defeating sin, Satan, and death. And it was after He ascended to the Father's right hand. What did He do when He ascended to the Father's right hand? We say it often. It's a phrase that is often just uttered in this place here. He ascended and He sat down on the throne of His eternal kingdom. You see, it was through the suffering of the cross and the victory of resurrection that Christ bound Satan that he could no longer deceive the nations. He bound Satan so that he could plunder his house. The nations belonged to Christ the King. The kingdom of God was begun on earth when Christ lived, died, rose again, and ascended to the Father's right hand. The nations now belong to Christ the King because He has won the victory they will, be held, they, they will be held captive in idolatry and in bondage to the evil one no longer, for Christ is risen. Satan has been cast down and bound, and Christ has ascended to His rightful throne. He has opened the way into the very presence of God for His people. 
He has set the captives free, and He has poured out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. Indeed, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. Disciples will be made of all nations. These will be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, thus making their entrance into Christ's eternal kingdom. These will be taught to observe all that Christ has commanded. And behold, we know that He is with us to the end of the age. Then His kingdom, which is now here in part, will be here in full. You can hear the allusion, I think, to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18-20. In these words. So then, John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets of old, given his proximity to Christ. More light was given to him than was given to all who preceded him. Think of it. More light was given to John the Baptist than was given to all who preceded him. But He still lived in the age of darkness and mystery. He still lived in that age of mystery. Though he knew that Christ was the one who was to come, he still did not know what exactly he would do to accomplish our redemption or what the result would be. John the Baptist would die before Christ was crucified, buried, and risen. John the Baptist would die before ever seeing the actual inauguration of this kingdom of which he proclaimed. After Christ died, rose again, and ascended, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter, and Paul, indeed all who have heard of Christ, His finished work, and have believed in His name, these have received a revelation that is much greater and brighter than the revelation that John the greatest of the prophets of old, had received. By God's grace, John walked confidently in an age of relative darkness by the light of the full moon. He could see Christ clearly so as to believe in Him and even to proclaim Him. But those who have heard the good news of Jesus Christ after His death, resurrection, and ascension walk in the light of the noontime sun. One needs only to compare the writings of Paul the Apostle with the writings of all the prophets of old, to observe the difference that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ has made. Ask yourself the question, what do the Scriptures say about Christ? And then go and read the Old Testament Scriptures. Do they say something about Christ? Yes, they do. He is promised there. He is prefigured there. He is revealed there. But He is revealed there in a mysterious way. The light of Christ that is found in the Old Testament is a dim light. Thanks be to God for that light. Indeed, many were saved by the light of the gospel that was given prior to His life, death, burial, and resurrection. Thanks be to God for this. But then go and ask yourself the question, what do the Scriptures say about Christ? And read the New Testament Scriptures. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the writings of Peter, the writings of Paul. Read the Scriptures and see that the light of Christ that is revealed and contained within the Scriptures of the New Testament is bright indeed. The revelation we have received now that Christ is risen is much greater. And so too is our experience. Not only have we received a greater revelation, a brighter revelation concerning the Messiah now that He has come, we also experience greater things. What should I say about this? In fact, I could go on for a very long time. Brothers and sisters, 
for you and I who live after the ascension of Christ, and for you and I who live under this new covenant which has been inaugurated, for you and I who live in the eternal kingdom that has begun, our redemption has been accomplished, past tense. Our redemption has been accomplished. We're able to look back upon it with this great confidence. It is finished, we can say. No saint living prior to the arrival of Christ, the birth of Christ, could say, it is finished. They could say, it will be finished. And how exactly it will be finished, we don't know. But we know that it will be finished, and we trust in God. That was a wonderful blessing. But ours is greater. Our redemption has been accomplished. We can look back upon it and see that it is done. We are united to this Christ who has been fully revealed because He has appeared in the world by faith. We are united to Him. The way into the presence of God has been opened up through Christ's mediation. The veil of the temple has been torn in two. I mention that often because it does illustrate the point so beautifully. We have this, we have this invitation into the very presence of God and we are invited to come boldly into His presence through faith in Jesus the Messiah. We're invited to come boldly before the throne of grace, we have been set free from the rigor and curse of the law. We now have a sympathetic high priest who intercedes for us continuously because he cannot be interrupted by fatigue, sickness, or death. You know, the people of God living under the Old Covenant um, had mediators. They had priests, and these priests were men. And these priests would have to sleep at night. These priests grew tired. These priests, they grew ill. These priests died and another priest would have to take their place. We have a different kind of priest. We have Christ Jesus the Lord and He intercedes for us continuously, without interruption, because He is not plagued by these weaknesses. He is a priest not in the line of Aaron, but in the line of Melchizedek. And think of this, brothers and sisters. Satan, our adversary, has been defeated, and he has been bound. I love to talk about this, as you know. It's such an interesting thing to consider, and it's such a comforting thing to the people of God. Satan has been bound. He has been defeated by the evil one, and his doom is sure. This is what passages such as Matthew 12, 29 Mark 3.27 and Revelation 20 verses 1-3 through 3, so clearly teach. People may wonder what it means for Satan to have been bound at Christ's first coming when he is so clearly active in this world. Is he active? Yes, he is. Very much so. Jesus himself taught us that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Does he do that still? Yes, he does. His binding is very specific according to these passages. Christ bound Satan at His first coming in a very particular way, and for a very particular reason. He did it so that He might plunder His house, Satan's house, His kingdom. Uh, were all the nations of this earth prior to Christ's finished work? And yet Satan has been bound so that S Satan's kingdom might now be plundered. He is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. He is bound so that disciples of Jesus could be made of all nations. And so I want you to think, brothers and sisters, of how the nations were bound in, dark, in the darkness of idolatry 
prior to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Do you know your history well enough to know about this? Prior to the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ and ascension to the Father's right hand, the nations were bound in the darkness of idolatry. Where was God's kingdom present in a prefigured sense? Really Israel only. The nations, the peoples of this earth outside of Israel were left in darkness. They were left in darkness until Christ came to accomplish our redemption. And He said to His disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's new. That is one of the new things about the new covenant. The kingdom of God was to go to the ends of the earth now that Christ has actually accomplished our redemption. And He sent His disciples out to make disciples of all nations on the basis of the fact that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him because of His finished work. They were to go and they were to make disciples and baptize and teach, and they were to do so confidently knowing that the Lord was with them to the end of the age. You see, you see this, is, this is what Christ did with Satan at His first coming. He defeated him. He bruised his head. He bound him specifically so that he might not hold the nations in darkness any longer. And what has happened over the past 2,000 years, brothers and sisters, except this very thing? The gospel has gone to the ends of the earth and it has come even to us who live in this faraway land, living 2,000 years after Christ's first coming. This is the result of Christ's victory. The binding of the strong man and the pouring out of the Spirit of God on all flesh on all nations, on all peoples. So I hope you have a better understanding of what Christ meant when after declaring John to be the greatest of the prophets of old, then said, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The insights that we have into the mystery of Christ are much greater. The benefits that we have received are greater too. Why? Because Christ, His kingdom, and the covenant He mediates are greater than all that came before. The last observation I have about our text is that those, in those days, some of the people received John the Baptist and therefore Jesus, whereas others rejected them both. Look at verse 29 of Luke 7. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, these are the religious elite, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. To reject the testimony of John was to reject the Messiah. For John testified concerning the Messiah. And the same could be said of the prophets of old. To reject them, to reject their word, was to reject the Lord, for these prophets spoke God's word to the people. We should remember the history of Israel, brothers and sisters, and how often the true prophets of God were mistreated within Israel, while the false prophets were shown honor. Christ made mention of this in His Sermon on the Plain, remember? Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. He says, when you are mistreated on account of the Son of Man, you're to rejoice, your reward is great in heaven, and do not forget that this is the way that people treated the prophets in times past. 
Even the prophets, these great men of God who spoke the word of God faithfully to the people, they were reviled by the majority. And so take comfort in this. A little later he said in that same passage, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So if you look at history, you see that the true prophets were often mistreated and the false prophets were often shown honor. So take comfort in this, Jesus is saying. You're in good company if you are mistreated on account of the Son of Man. We should not be surprised, therefore, that John the Baptist was imprisoned and Christ was crucified. Nor should we be surprised that it was the Pharisees and the lawyers who rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John, while it was the common people and even the tax collectors who declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. In their self-righteous pride, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose of salvation in Christ Jesus. But God showed mercy to sinners to draw them to faith and to repentance. How might we apply this text for our lives today? I have just two suggestions for you. One, I would urge you to learn from John the Baptist and to imitate his unwavering faith his forsaking of the pleasures of this world, and his willingness to suffer, yes, even to die, for the sake of knowing Christ. He was not a reed shaken by the wind. He was not tempted by soft and luxurious clothing. He was a man of strong faith and unwavering conviction, and he is to be imitated. All of this good that we see in John the Baptist is by the grace of God. His greatness is due to his association with Jesus Christ. John, in and of himself, was not great. But by God's grace, he was great. And by his association with Jesus Christ, he was great. And he is to be imitated in these things where he was strong. Two, I would urge you to think of the many blessings that are ours through faith in Christ, with special attention given to the blessings of the new covenant. We don't think often enough enough about this, brothers and sisters. We live in a very privileged time, living after Christ's work has been accomplished, living now under the new covenant with its many and great blessings. And I think it would be good for us to reflect upon those blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. On the one hand, it would be a great error to think that salvation was not possible under the Old Covenant or that it was obtained in some other way than through faith in Christ alone, that would be a terrible error to make. The Scriptures are very clear that Abraham was justified in the same way that we are, through faith in Christ alone. But it would also be a great error to think that there is no difference between the Old Covenant and the New. The New Covenant and its blessings are far superior to the Old. If you'd like to learn more about this, read the book of Hebrews. It's all about this. I will not repeat all that I said earlier about the superiority of the new covenant. I think it will suffice to encourage you to reflect upon the knowledge we have of Christ and of His finished work. Think of how clear your picture is of the Christ now that He has come. Think of how clear your understanding is of our eternal reward through faith in Him now that He has come to finish the work given to Him by the Father in eternity. These truths were revealed in a dim way under the Old Covenant. Now we see them clearly. And so let us reflect often upon Christ and our salvation in Him. 
And let us draw near to Him. And let us be a people of great hope and rejoicing. Let us bow together for a word of prayer now. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the ministry of John the Baptist, uh, for his unwavering commitment to proclaim Christ. Uh, We thank You for the light that You gave to him and for the way that He revealed it to the people faithfully. Help us to imitate Him in these things, O God, that we would be unwavering, that we would cling to Christ closely. And do help us, O God, to study the Scriptures carefully and to see Christ in them and to rejoice in Christ. O Lord, I pray that You would increase our understanding of how blessed we are in Christ Jesus to have our sins forgiven and to have the hope of life everlasting. Lord, increase our faith, increase our knowledge, increase our love, increase our resolve. Help us, O God, to walk boldly in this world with confidence, knowing that our salvation is secure, knowing that our eternal inheritance cannot be taken away because it was not earned by us, but it was earned by another, Christ Jesus the Lord. I pray that all of this knowledge, all of this truth would result in peace in our minds, joy in our hearts, O God and a faithful and obedient life. Do this, we pray, for our good and the glory of your most holy name. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.